Southern Soul Livestream is a weekly talk show and music hangout where the hosts learn your name and just might remind you of a favorite relative. We spotlight fascinating people, discuss current events, and pay special attention to lifting up generations. So if you want to know more, learn more, be more, or just be, Southern Soul Livestream is the place for you. Join us every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Just log on, kick back, and experience the eclectic vibe. Check us out at soullivestream.com. What I'd like to do is to introduce tonight's section, tonight's episode with a personal testimony. And I'm not going to get too personal because it's very, very personal. So it's one of those topics that, you know, it explains itself. You know, how did I stumble upon this topic is a very awesome story for me. Because I was actually helping out a friend, volunteering, and just simply doing some project management, right? Helping out. And I stumbled upon this topic that I didn't know even existed, maternal health. Now, don't get me wrong. You hear about it, you know, have a baby by 35, but that's all, you know, as a guy I was familiar with. So as I volunteered, I'm sitting in this room, well, it was a Zoom room, of probably over 20 people who are very passionate about this topic. And as I began to listen, I instantly started thinking about my own family. I started thinking about the time when I lost my sister at the age 19 and she left behind a four month old child. I didn't understand the topic. All I knew I was angry. Many years ago, I went to therapy and therapy, they tell me I got survivor's guilt and all this other stuff. I don't know what's going on. All I knew is this thing, some kind of way lingered again and again and again. So next thing you know, it happens again in my family. Mother leaves behind a child. And it seems weird. It seems like these things can't be related. They, they can't be related, but they kind of seem so familiar. So being who I am, I, as people say, I recall and you know, you know, um, tell stories on the fly, whatever. But as I begin to put the stories together, I say, you know what, I've seen this. So what I learned those days of volunteering about maternal health is that there's this thing called risk factors. And that it's not just what happens in the hospital. It's also what happens when people go home. And at first I was confused because I saw some numbers. They said, oh, we look and we monitor women who, you know, um, face some sort of mortality or tragedy within 42 days of the child's um, birth. Then I was like, well, that was my sister, I think, but it wasn't my cousin. But then I found other numbers that says, no, you can't stop there. You got to go within the first 1,000 days. And then I began to say, OMG. I'm old church guy, so in my mind, I'm like, there must be this curse, this, this thing of going on. But what I knew is I had to spotlight this show. I had to work with my network, the people I know, and find someone to speak on this topic. So the people I know, I've asked four different people. 
And I'm thankful that Dr. Fleming is here tonight to share with us what essentially is her career. So without any more you know, details, I just wanna kind of share with everyone here. And we had another speaker that was gonna give her personal testimony, but something came up, but that's okay because we're gonna get into the topic anyway. But before we do, before we spotlight Dr. Fleming, Katie, could you get us started by um, giving us the show intro? And Tamika, if you can spotlight Dr. Fleming and I, we'll go ahead and get started. Sure, Southern Soul Livestream is a weekly talk show and music hangout where the hosts learn your name and just might remind you of a favorite relative. We spotlight fascinating people, discuss current events and pay special attention to lifting up generations. So if you want to know more, learn more, be more, or just be, Southern Soul Livestream is the place to be. Join us every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Just log on, kick back, and experience the eclectic vibe. Check us out at soullivestream.com. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Thanks for that, Katie. Can you guys hear me okay? It's a little vibrate. Is the other one muted? It's a little weird. Uh, I think I stopped it. Uh, it sounds a little weird. So I'll, go, I'll go back to the other one. No, you're good. You're good. I'm good now? Yeah. Okay, cool. Dr. Mary E. Fleming. What's up, girl? How you doing? <laughs> I'm fine. How are you today? Good, good. Thank you for being here. You know, it's so funny because even though you and I both went to Vanderbilt, we were not there at the same time. And, you know, as I started thinking about, hey, I need somebody to cover this topic. I need somebody to talk about this topic. And, you know, I don't know what they call it, faith or something happened to where I stumbled into you. And I was like, hey, I want to cover this topic. I can only imagine what you were thinking. Like, what is this man talking about? You know, he <laughs> looks like a hippie. He's talking about stuff. He only knows enough to be dangerous. I mean, what were your thoughts when I, was, when I first kind of, you know, approach you? Uh, yeah, I think you sent me a, a message on Instagram first. And I was like, well, this looks interesting. Like the topic of, you know, your, your platform looked interesting. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna check it out. And then you sent me another message like, you want to be a guest? And then it was like, you want to talk about maternal health? And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but I was like, I mean, that's in my wheelhouse. So sure, why not? Well, well, definitely thank you for responding, you know, um, because I know um, over the years, I've kind of seen you come and go. And I know we probably first connected when I was building like the Vanderbilt Alumni Social yeah. Network and stuff like that. But that was over 10 years ago. That was right? a long time ago. Let's not yeah, talk so, about how long ago that was. Yeah, exactly. Right. So so the funny thing is that, you know, first connect 10 years later. And trust me, I didn't remember back then. But then, you know, we reconnect. It was just a, a great, you know, experience for me. But, you know, what I would like to do is first introduce you. And I'm just going to read your bio just so people can kind of know who you are. And then what I want to do is, you know, show a few slides so we can all get on the same page on the topic. Okay. And then we can step into some interview questions. For the okay. people who are here, just to let you guys know what to expect, what we're going to do is introduction, show a few slides, like four, just so we can get on the same page. Then we're going to do 15, 20 minutes of interview. And then what we're going to do is Q&A. So any questions you have for Dr. Fleming, definitely be thinking about them because we're going to do that. And then my favorite part is we're going to do at the end, open discussion, because the key thing about open discussion 
uh, I want to get into, and this is one of the um, terms I got from Dr. Fleming, is this topic, in order to make things better, it definitely takes a village. So what we have here is a village of people. So I'm very, very excited and looking forward to hearing from you all, because in this village, begin to talk about what we can do to improve this story. So let me go ahead and uh, let's see, read Dr. Fleming's back. Let's see here. A Louisville, Kentucky native, Dr. Mary E. Fleming completed her undergraduate degree at Xavier University in Louisiana. Her medical degree at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine and her residency, I can't say that word, so I'm just gonna say OBGYN. <laughs> At Meharry Medical College, that's Nashville, Tennessee. Due to her interest in eradicating health inequalities, inequities, excuse me, and improving health care for the underserved, she matriculated to Harvard Medical School as a Commonwealth Fellow in Minority Health Policy, where she also obtained a Master in Public Health from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. She practiced as a generalist in Norristown, Pennsylvania Community Hospital for four years before deciding to transition to a full-time, another word, locum tenens position. That's it. You got it. In this capacity, she has worked in several states across the country this practice model has allowed her to travel to Kenya for six months to volunteer with Our Lady of Lourdes Mission <laughs> Hospital in Montalmo. Lastly, as an ardent champion of health equity, Fleming currently serves in clinical OBGYN shortage areas in the Northeast region, she continues to explore avenues to grow her skills to serve vulnerable populations of this country and globally. In addition to her clinical work, she consults as a medical expert reviewer, physician editor, and leads a nonprofit, Read Scholars. As president, she develops strategies for collective action among the scholars to address health equity and social justice. Man, that is a beautiful bio. Girl, you've been busy. That sounds like a mouthful. It's not, I mean, okay, I won't minimalize it. People tell me not to do that. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, it's beautiful, right? But but you, 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 you've been unique though. I mean, before we get into the questions, I mean, you also have a nickname, Nomad OBGYN, right? Yes, that is correct. Oh, yeah. OMG. So I think, you know, this has to be a calling for you because not everybody's had that flexibility to travel and do those things. So I just think, you know, you just had a unique opportunity and blessing because, I mean, Kenya, I mean, I can only imagine the number of hospitals you've been in. Yeah, I've been. Um, so one of the reasons I wanted to travel, I wanted to be able to travel to just have that flexibility, but I also wanted to be able to really see how medicine was practiced in different areas Medicine is also very regional and geographical, as we're kind of seeing with the COVID rollout. You see how there's different state laws that influences how health policy is written. It influences how healthcare is delivered. 
And so I've been able to practice in urban areas, suburban areas, rural areas. Uh, and then of course in Kenya, which was a very rural, you know, um, international experience. So everything is, some things are very different, but at the heart of the, at the end of the day, it's all kind of the same. Um, so understanding the little nuances is, is, is interesting. And I'm hope, hopefully will help me to, um, continue to help people um, as I go from place to place. So trying to put the pieces together. Awesome. And that's definitely one of the questions I have for you, because I'm curious at seeing how your travels have influenced your lens of how you see this thing, medicine. And you've, you've given us a sneak preview, but definitely I'm going to ask more about that. So let's get into the four slides. So if you don't mind, introduce us so that we're all on the same page of this topic of maternal mortality. I'm just going to start with your first slide here. Okay. Get over there. And so this is definitely not going to be a lecture, so don't tune out. We're just going to do these quick slides with a few minutes. Um, and so the, the idea is, so we've heard a lot about maternal mortality in the news, especially um, recently, um, and mostly because the numbers are so stark when you look at the rest of the world. So you think of the U.S. as this very affluent country with all of these medical resources and um, access to care. And you wouldn't think that we would be at the bottom of the list um, on, a, on a health outcome platform. Um, but maternal mortality is one of those which across the board, we are at the bottom of the list. And for black and brown women, it's even worse. So um, this, I won't read this to you, but I like this infographic because it kind of captures the whole picture. So the first number is there are 49 countries um, that have a lower rate that are doing better in maternal mortality than we are. And uh, so that's, that's horrendous, right? Um, and we, so the, and these numbers also translate to infant mortality as well. They're, they're almost mirror images, um, but we have higher rates of C-sections, higher rates of women who die, higher rates of morbidity, which is just complications associated with pregnancy like high blood pressure and, and diabetes. And so this just kind of gives you the overall picture. Things don't look good. You can go to the next one. And so when we think about things not looking good, um, the, we also think about, like I said, the disparity between white women in this country and, and um, black and brown women in, in this country. So this is a slide from California, but the reason why I, I chose this slide because it shows a couple of things. One, um, the numbers were, oh, you know, always there was a disparity, but it, it actually got worse <laughs> um, as technology and access and, uh, healthcare got better uh, in the uh, early 2000s. But then even as the, the rates got better, so the, in California implemented several things, we won't go into all of those details, but they did, they noticed that this was a big disparity. They implemented some changes and the rates all came down. So we talk a lot about um, health inequities and when there are any health inequities, everybody's health suffers. It's not just the, the disadvantaged population. It's the whole population. So you can see even the white population at the bottom, theirs got worse too, right? Just not at the same magnitude. So you make the system better for everyone, everybody's rates will go down, but the disparity still is, is huge. So even though we brought the overall numbers down, we didn't really address the disparity issue between the white population and the black and brown population. And part of that reason that we talk a lot more now about, which we've always known, is that there is um, systemic issues in the health system, a lot, of, a lot due to racism and the historic um, 
way that the healthcare system was was constructed. But this kind of just paints again the picture of of the the numbers overall, but also the disparity between um, the two populations. So you can go to the next one. The other thing we talk about when we talk about health disparities and health um, inequities is that most of the care that we or the care that we receive in the hospital setting with uh, a healthcare provider is only a little bit of what affects our actual health outcomes. Um, so, you know, we think about things that where we live and where do we live close to? Do we live close to a water treatment plant or electrical facility or a river that might be polluted, right? Do we have access to fresh fruits and vegetables? And vegetables. Do we live in a food desert? Is the closest grocery store two miles away? Or can we have access to transportation? Do we have a car? Do we have, can we afford a car? What's the, the transportation? Um, even when, especially when you think about rural areas don't, that don't have public transportation, how are you getting um, to the grocery store? How are you taking your kids to school? That type of thing. Um, we think about financial stability. So that's, that's job income, that's insurance status access to education. So all of those things affect our health. But a lot of times we focus on what we think these modifiable behaviors are on a one-on-one -on -one basis that we do when we go home, which are important, you know, being in a healthy weight, not smoking, not using alcohol excessively, all of those things, making smart decisions are important. But there's also other important factors that happen outside of those behaviors and outside of the interactions that you have at the doctor's office that influence your health. And that's really what we're talking about when we talk about health disparities and social determinants of health. You can go to the last one. So when uh, what we're trying to move towards is away from let's give everybody the same thing and let them figure it out, right? And that's what we often do. Well, you know, it doesn't um, give an example for um, um, maternal mortality, like just because you have the same access to a hospital, you have the same access to prenatal care, you have, might have the same insurance status. When we when we look at the uh, the numbers, even for Black women who have a great job, went to school, go to prenatal care, do everything they're supposed to do, their rates of dying are still higher and much higher than white women with a high school education. So there's a gap there. We can't throw the same thing at, at every group of people and expect um, the same outcome. We have to figure out what the gaps are and match the resources to the individual to fit their needs in order to optimize their health outcomes. So this is what this image is trying to show. If you give, you know, you can't just give everybody the same bicycle and hope that they're gonna figure out how to make it work. Can they kind of make it work, right? We're, we can adjust a little bit, but why not find what the appropriate resources are? What are the tools that that individual needs in order to live their best life? And so that's what we're trying to do um, by re reducing health disparities. Awesome, awesome. So I'm gonna stop with the screen share, I think. Yep, and I'm back. So let's um, step into a few questions. Thanks for summarizing that and getting us on the same page. And for people who are listening, be thinking about your questions because we're definitely gonna have discussion and we're definitely gonna have an opportunity for you to ask direct questions for Dr. Fleming. So let's spend the next 15, 20 minutes just kind of chatting through your story, Dr. Fleming. So tell me this. Um, You've kind of alluded to it, you know, some of your travels and things like that, that, you know, of the opportunities you've been afforded. But tell us about your personal health disparities journey, right? You know, how your travel 
has influenced your perspective of care and maternal mortality? Yeah, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how to answer that question because when, like, when did it really start? I think, um, like, you know, I'm making a broad generalization here, so don't hold me completely to the statement. But I think for a lot of Black people who grew up in Black neighborhoods in this country, you always realize that there was something different, right? You always realize that the the playing field was not quite equal, um, and the access was not quite the same. And so I think I've always been distinctly aware of the inequities in this society and, and it just layered on um, my career when I decided to do medicine. And I, I think initially I was aware of um, when I thought about going into OBGYN, I was thinking a lot about reproductive health education, actually, and access to contraception and decrease in teenage pregnancy. Um, and, and thinking about my high school experience and my early college experience and seeing my classmates disappear, right? And come back um, and come back with the baby. And you're like, oh, okay, that's what happened. But we didn't really talk about it. We didn't really talk about why that happened, where they went, what kind of resources they would need, how that might change their future trajectory, um, what their expectation for educational attainment was, was going to be. And so that was interesting to me. And that's kind of how I started thinking about um, health disparities along um, the lines of being an OBGYN. Um, and then when I went to um, Meharry, like, so Meharry's is an awesome place to train. Um, it's a great hospital. It's founded in the core of it is, is founded in helping those who are in need. And so we were really trained to treat the whole person. And so I think that really gave me the foundation to say, I wanna do more than just treat this one person sitting in front of me in this one moment. I wanna figure out how I can help change their environment so that we can change their whole life. And so that's what prompted me to go to the Commonwealth Fund Fellowship in Minority Health Policy, because I felt like I needed an additional amount of training to really understand what was the, like, why did these things happen, right? All the, the health disparities didn't just happen. It is not something that just happened five years or 10 years ago. This is historical um, because of the, the American way, if you will. Um, and there are lots of policies in place that we don't even think about on an everyday basis that affect our health outcomes. And so kind of learning that and understanding that, um, then I didn't exactly know what to do with it, right? <laughs> so I was like, I've got all this information, what do I do? And I still wanted to be a, a well-trained clinician. Um, so my next step was actually to just go and um, get grounded in a clinical practice. So that's what took me to Norristown. And why I picked that particular practice was it was a community-based hospital. So that's, I liked being in the community. Um, and it was right down the street from the public health department. And so I was like, okay, I can still work on some public health projects. Um, in my first couple task force, I was on the maternal mortality committee. Um, and so that's when I really started thinking about that a little bit more. Um, what well, was maternal mortality and infant death committee was kind of put together. We talked a lot about the opioid epidemic and how that affected pregnancy. And then we had a teen pregnancy um, task force as well. So that's kind of when I started putting the clinical practice with kind of these public health uh, interests and trying to figure out what the avenues were to, to make change and that type of thing. Um, and then like I alluded to, then I was like, ah, I still want to know a little bit more. Um, and, you know, Norristown, Pennsylvania was, was great. I enjoyed my experience there, but I wanted to figure out a little bit more on how things worked in different parts of the country and the different parts of the world. And so in order to have that flexibility is why I chose to do locum tenum. So basically it's, you know, some people call me a travel doctor or, um, 
kind of sometimes like a substitute doctor, but it's not quite like people compare to travel nursing, but it's a little bit different. Um, but it gives me the flexibility to control my schedule. And that gave me the time to build and the time to go to Kenya. So most times if you think about standard clinical practice, you can't go away for six months, right? Because you have a panel of patients and people that you're responsible to. But being able to be basically a contracted doctor, then I could build in that time to go um, and spend time in Kenya and, and understand what's what it really is to work in an under-resourced area. And like I said, even though there were lots of things that were different, also, they're at the baseline, everything is the same. Everybody wants adequate care. Everyone, especially in the maternal health platform, everybody wants to do the, what's best for their baby, right? Everybody wants the healthy delivery. Um, and the, the medical team is there to try to help you do that. And even though the resources may be smaller, they were still adequate. Um, you know, a lot of the things that were challenging when I was there were things like access to blood, right? So you think about, one of the things we talk about maternal mortality is uh, postpartum hemorrhage. And so that means after you deliver, the bleeding is excessive. Um, and so when you're in the hospital, things we do to decrease your bleeding is give you medicine, um, give you fluids to try to expand your, your, what blood volume you do have. And sometimes you need surgery, you need um, a hysterectomy sometimes, and you sometimes you need blood transfusion. In resource poor areas, you might not have access to the same medications. You might not have access to blood. You might not have access to a surgeon to do your hysterectomies. And that's why we, um, we want you to deliver in a hospital so that you're more likely to have access to all of those things so that you don't die from bleeding to death at home, basically. So I think I went way to the left with your original question, but uh, <laughs> bring it back. A little bit. I, I actually like it because um, but, <laughs> but keep yeah. going because I do have my next question, but keep going because I like where you're going. Uh, well, no, I mean, that was kind of it. But so that was kind of my trajectory in trying to understand what the full scope of uh, maternal health issues are locally and globally, and then kind of coming back and trying to put those pieces together. And so part of that, I mean, I, part of my work is still in maternal health. And so that's how I've involved and we didn't really talk about Kayaba Care. So that's my newest uh, involvement. Um, and so that's a, a new company that's based in Philadelphia and it's a maternal health solution um, that's based on meeting, meeting women where they are, meeting patients where they are to bridge the gap between clinical care and what their social needs may be at home. Um, and so that's kind of, kind of a full transition. And then also I do a lot with Reed Scholars where we talk about health equity more in general, but um, that's kind of how I'm trying to put the pieces together, but it's still a work in progress. Well, well, that's an awesome story. And I could definitely see the different pieces coming together, right? The different pieces from the different experiences. For example, one thing you said that really has me thinking, where in a certain place, they may not have access to blood, right? But in another place, they do have access to blood, but something may prevent them from getting that blood that's available so it's still an access problem, right? So like you said, it's different, but it's the same. So I, I definitely like that story you're telling. T tell me this, let's, let's get into the risk factors, right? You know, I, I found a bunch of numbers when I was looking into this. And one of the numbers I found is that black women are four times more likely to die from pregnancy and childbirth in the United States than another group. Like what's going on there? What is that even about, right? I mean. I mean, do you mind breaking that down for us? Because one thing you said that also made me think is when you're at, you know, doing your public health work, it's almost like it gave you a different lens than 
your medical work, right? And having friends who did some public health type thing, I know it deals with numbers, but if you don't mind kind of helping us understand the numbers, one, what's happening with black women that's not happening with other women, you know, and how did your public health perspective help you see and understand that a little differently? That's a very long answer, but I will try to make it as short as possible. No, 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 uh, <laughs> we, we have time. So there's a, it's, it's, it's multifactorial, right? There's a whole bunch of stuff. It's not just one issue. Um, I think a couple of things, and I wanted to say this earlier when you were talking about trying to figure out exactly what the definition of maternal mortality is, we probably should state that. So there are a couple of definitions actually. So there's one that talks about death and in pregnancy or related to pregnancy um, during the delivery process and postpartum up to 42 days. That's one definition, but there's also the expanded definition that's up to one year. Generally in this country, we use the one that's up to one year, right? But that also, that also gets into why the numbers are somewhat variable because it depends on how people report them. And we know we probably miss some people, right? So if you're at month nine or 10 from delivery, the person who you know is taking care of you and, and is reporting that out may not remember to write down that you recently had a pregnancy. So I just, just so that the numbers are all sometimes a little bit fuzzy for that reason. Um, that's one. Reasons why just in general people died and related to pregnancy. So there are pregnancy related things. So that's when we talk about postpartum hemorrhage, which I mentioned earlier, high blood pressure, uh, that's something called preeclampsia. A long time ago, they called it toxemia. So some people still hear that word. So um, severe blood pressure issues during pregnancy or other cardiac related issues. Some people, you'll hear people talking about cardiomyopathy, which is when the heart gets too big because it was, it was working too hard and it's less efficient. So that can cause um, issues during pregnancy, but that's also something that can cause issues further down the postpartum route. Um, there are things around infection, right? Anytime you you have, have a procedure, if you will, there's always a risk of infection. There's a risk of infection in pregnancy that can lead to complications that can lead to death. Um, and then there's a second related, and we probably won't go into this as much, but uh, just to bring up what we call pregnancy associated deaths, right? Um, so there are other things that aren't traditional uh, clinical diagnoses that might lead to death around and during pregnancy, which are things like mental health illness, suicide, homicide, intimate partner violence can cause morbidity too. Um, and so those are things that we don't talk about as much, but are very important because pregnant people are vulnerable on all levels. Um, and, and it's not just the things that happen in the hospital, it's also the social environment that, um, that influences their outcome. So that's one thing. So, okay, stepping back. So why are black and brown women at more risk? So some of it is because of they're at higher risk for these, these um, uh, morbidities that I was talking about, like high blood pressure and diabetes. So we always hear black and brown women, black and brown people are at higher risk for high blood pressure and diabetes. Well, what we're talking about more now is, well, why are we at higher risk? Because initially it was like, well, there must be something wrong with black people. We must be genetically different. There must be something that we're doing. We're making poor decisions, right? that are putting us at higher risk. When the reality is, it's more about, again, the systemic uh, things that have been in place over time um, that disadvantages us in the healthcare system, but there's also the systemic racism that happens in the world that changes how we interact with the healthcare system. For instance, one of the theories is something called weathering. Um, and so that's how, as uh, racism is 
experienced um, by Black people in this country, it causes basically a chronic condition. And so our bodies are weathered over time and they don't work as well. And so they don't work as well in, during pregnancy. And it's not just something that happens during, uh, for me, if I were pregnant, for me in this pregnancy, this weathering also transitions to my um, infant, if you will, and that process will continue. So it's generational. Um, and so over time, our outcomes are just worse and worse because we have this kind of chronic condition because of the stress of everyday racism in this country. So that's one thing. Then once we get to the healthcare system, um, we don't interact with the healthcare system the same way. And for example, um, and I, I, I'll use a, a non-maternity example of, around pain, because a lot of people think about uh, going to the hospital and especially with the, the opioid crisis, we talk about pain and people are very apprehensive to use pain medicine and I understand that. But think about, you go to the hospital and you have a surgery and that surgery hurts, right? I've cut some part of your body. Some part of your body is open that didn't used to be open and it hurts. And, if, and thinking about like a GYN procedure is probably on your abdomen, right? And so that means I want you though the next day to get up out of the bed and go to the bathroom. I want you the next day to get up out of the bed and walk around the hallway because I know I need to send you home. And when you get home, you're going to have to go to the bathroom. You might have to go up the stairs. You have to take care of like fix yourself something. So I need to know that you can get up and take care of yourself. Now, there's this misconception that Black people don't feel pain the same way, right? So the nurse may come in and say, oh, you don't need any pain medicine because she assumes you don't need any pain medicine because you're Black. And you're thinking, well, I guess I'm not supposed to get any pain medicine and you don't ask for any. But then you don't get out of the bed because why? It hurts. <laughs> like, so then you're in this cycle where I can't get out of the bed. I'm not getting better because it hurts, but nobody's giving me any pain medicine and I don't know that I'm supposed to ask for it. Um, and then if you do ask for it, there's you know the misconception where you must be pain seeking. Don't give that person any, any pain medicine because it must be one of those drug seekers, right? So it becomes this perpetual issue where you're already at a disadvantage walking in the door and then it's a double whammy because the system perceives you a different way and you don't get adequate treatment. So then for you can't respond appropriately and recover the right way. Um, so those are a few examples. I mean, there are clearly more, but a few of the examples of how we interact with the system and why it's really not designed to give us optimal healthcare. Well, thank you for sharing that because as you spoke, it definitely allowed me to kind of connect, right? With the, I guess it's bias, right? That we experience bias everywhere. And I'm glad that you made that statement about, you know, racism being stressful, right? You know, it's like, oh, maybe they're just got to have blood pressure, right? But, you know, it's stressful, right? And that stress just has this impact, but it, it's really, you know, I'm excited to hear that the conversations have changed on blood pressure and that the conversations have changed. Now, now, you know, as I was reading, I was seeing all kinds of stuff on bias, right? And I hadn't even thought about it, right? That what you're telling me is that nurses and doctors can have bias when they're treating patients and not treat them based on what they need because of some hidden bias that they don't know they have. Yeah, so that you're speaking of implicit bias. And so the reality is we all have bias, right? And um, bias is not inherently a bad thing. Um, 
because think about think about um, benign biases, right? So we as individuals are going to be biased against people who didn't go to Vanderbilt, right? So because we have a natural <laughs> affiliation, right? You have biases against your your home squad, right? So I'm I'm a University of Louisville fan all day, right? And don't talk to me about anybody else, and that's okay. That's fun bias, right? That's okay. Tennessee whiskey. Right, right. You know, we we can talk about you know uh, Kentucky bourbon all day, but so that's fun. That's that's banter. That's preference. Those biases, okay. But and and usually those are understood and known, and we talk about it and it's fine. Implicit bias is a problem because most people don't really understand that they have it, and if you ask them, they will say, "I treat everybody the same." Because most people aren't trying to be bad. Most people aren't trying to be racist, but it's because of how we were trained, how we were brought up, the way the country was built, these things are just in, ingrained in us and we don't know. Um, and so how that plays out, it plays out in a different kind of way in the healthcare system because it affects people's health and their outcomes. And so the, the slowly, as we, we name a thing a thing, so we are working on naming the thing, naming implicit bias, naming racism in healthcare, naming racism as a public health crisis, uh, so that people are aware and then they can start to check their biases. Um, and so that's what we really want people to do. We, humans are humans and we are imperfect and fallible and that's okay. What's not okay is to say, I'm not going to do anything about it. So trying to raise awareness, have these conversations, having conversations in mixed company. Um, you know, I feel like a lot of times we still have these conversations in silos with people who think like us, but, and it's because it's very uncomfortable to have conversations in mixed audiences because the initial um, response is often that of being defensive. Like, of course, I'm not, of course, I don't treat people differently. Of course, I'm not racist and not saying we're not judging you or faulting you, but there is a way that we can change it um, and do better so that everybody can live optimally. But it's it's definitely a culture shift. Well, well thank you for explaining that because that definitely gives me a new way to look at implicit bias. Um, tell me about this. You know, I, I think this is a, I don't know, I'm thinking it's bittersweet, but I think it helps the cause a little bit. But this Black women are affected disproportionately independent of the social economic factor. Mm-hmm. I mean, it don't matter how much money you got, how much education you got, what side of town you were born on. It's just simple as if, if you Black and a woman, this thing can affect you. Like, who are some famous people who have experienced that? And, and, and you know. Yeah, so there, I mean, the the... I think the first um, celebrity that really made a wave in talking about maternity morbidity really more than mortality was Serena Williams. So somebody mentioned that. Um, and so she had, so she already had a pre-existing condition that was going to be, that had the potential to worsen in pregnancy. So she had had pulmonary embolisms are, um, and thrombotic embolic disease is, is the technical term. So there are blood clots somewhere in her body that travel to her lungs. Um, and when they travel to your lungs, they can cause respiratory distress, but they can also break off and travel to other places like your, your brain and cause um, and strokes and, and death and all those things. And so in pregnancy, your risk of blood clots go up just because of the nature of pregnancy and the, the chemical changes that happen. Um, so she was already kind of primed and aware that that could happen. And so 
she was able to advocate for herself in a different way that women, another woman probably would, would have been able to do that. Um, I think the other person we talked about was um, Allison Phoenix, uh, Felix, right? The track star and her um, interaction was preeclampsia. So that was what I was talking about with the high blood pressure and pregnancy. Preeclampsia is interesting um, in that it's one of those things. So if you have high blood pressure before pregnancy, of course, you're going to be at risk for having high blood pressure during pregnancy. But preeclampsia is a um, diagnosis that is specific to pregnancy. It's something that happens in humans and just in humans, I think in one other animal species, uh, but it's a very unique thing. And it can be something that's insidious. It can just slowly happen. So we have some idea, like your blood pressure might slowly go up. You might slowly have more swelling in your hands, I mean, in your feet and then in your hands and then in your face, um, that type of thing. So sometimes it's slow and we can stay ahead of it. And sometimes it happens overnight. Like I might see you in the office today and you're fine and you call me tomorrow with a pounding headache and blurry vision and being dizzy, and you come in and your blood pressure is 200 over 105 and it becomes an emergency. So that's the hard thing about preeclampsia is that it can happen very quickly and they're not always, um, they're always warning signs, but the warning signs don't always happen slowly or gradually. Sometimes they are immediate um, and they need to be uh, addressed quickly. And then the other part of that, so we talked, you know, we're talking about maternal mortality, but we also talked a little bit about infant mortality as well and how it's, it's intertwined. So women who have these severe uh, morbidity issues, like when we talk about severe preeclampsia, that can mean that you might have to be delivered early. So when as Allison Felix's example, I think she was delivered at like 32 weeks. So that's a premature baby. So that baby has to go to the NICU. Um, and so that can then, you know, I think her baby's fine, but um, with early babies that, you know, can cause other problems for them as well. So it kind of all goes together. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, it seems like, you know, any cause is great when there's a champion, right? You know, and, you know, Allison Felix, she kind of stepped out and became a champion for the cause. And, you know, I think some people feel like it's definitely increased awareness and understanding for those people to share their story. No different than what we're doing tonight. We're just simply talking about it. But let's think about the people who um, wanna have a baby, right? You know, what can be done, right? Let's say that there's a woman somewhere, a daughter, a cousin, she wants to have a baby, right? Mm -hmm. Based on, you know, what, what can be done? And I just have the phases between preconception, during pregnancy, during labor, you know, delivery, postpartum. What can be done if, you know, someone today know, hey, I'm a black woman, I want to have a baby, it's complicated out there, what can be done? Um, so there are a few things as an individual that you can do. So one, the reality is preconception health is, is a thing, but most of our pregnancies in this country are still unintended, right? So that's a whole other conversation for another day when we talk about unintended pregnancies. But thinking about if you are a reproductive age person, um, thinking about your contraceptive needs, if and, if and when you want to have a baby. And so that's one thing to think about it, have the conversation about it, um, having the conversation with your, your healthcare provider about that um, and being very purposeful about um, planning pregnancy as opposed to letting pregnancy happen to you. That's one. Two, optimizing your health before pregnancy. So if you have 
uh, already have a chronic condition, you want to make sure that's in tip top shape before you start to plan a pregnancy. So if you have diabetes or high blood pressure, thyroid disease, that type of thing, you want to make sure those are stable um, and is optimally controlled before you think about having a baby, that your medications are in line and appropriate for pregnancy. You want to make sure that your ideal health, I mean, not ideal health, ideal weight. Um, so the, the closest you can be to your ideal weight before pregnancy is going to be better. Um, it, if you're in reproductive age, you can take a prenatal vitamin, whether you're thinking about getting pregnant tomorrow or two years from now, prenatal vitamin never hurts. Um, and so that you're already optimized on your vitamin levels and folic acid. Um, so that's something that you can do when you're seeking out a healthcare provider. Um, you know, once you become pregnant, you definitely want to go and have prenatal care. You want to start that as, um, around eight weeks or so is good, unless you have a, a chronic medical condition, then you might want to start earlier, but for just in general speaking, somewhere between eight and 10 weeks is when you want to start prenatal care. Uh, when looking for a prenatal care provider, I say the doctor-patient relationship or healthcare provider-patient relationship is just like any, any other relationship. It needs to fit, right? So every, every I am not for everybody, right? Um, and that's okay. That doesn't hurt my feelings at all. I want you to be with someone that you connect with, that you can talk to, um, that you're going to respond to, that you feel, that you trust, so that you will follow that person's directive. So you really want to find somebody who suits you and meet and um, fits you in a relationship manner. The, the caveat to that is not everybody has a choice, right? So we, we talked about insurance status and access um, to care. So there are women who only have one provider that they can see or one group that they can see. So that's kind of a system issue. But as much as you can choose, um, try to find a provider that um, fits your needs and understands you and that you can trust. And after that is, you know, you know, following the recommendations based on, you know, your pregnancy and your need and your history. Um, and, you know, when you get to the labor process, um, you know, always, you should always have a support person with you of some kind, um, you know, whether that's your partner or sister, or your mom or whoever, um, you, you want to have a support person because in, with any type of medical interaction, because sometimes you don't hear everything, especially if you're getting bad news or stressful or that type of thing. And then, you know, feeling empowered enough to ask questions and advocate for yourself. Um, so if something doesn't make sense to you, say, I don't, I don't understand. That doesn't make sense. Can you explain it to me again? Um, and, and that's okay. Like we don't have to take what people give us. Um, if it doesn't make sense to you or you don't feel comfortable with it, then ask again. If it's a situation where you can get a second opinion, go get a second opinion. I also tell people all the time, that does not hurt my feelings. You know you better than anybody else. You're going home with you. I am not. So you need to do what's best for you. And if you don't feel comfortable with what I'm telling you, you need to go and ask somebody else. Um, and that's perfectly okay. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I like what you said about, you know, always having someone with you, right? An advocate, right? And, and, and we definitely live during a time where maybe dad is not always there, the husband, you know, but there's other people who can be there. And I hadn't thought about what you said is that when you're in the hospital, you probably stress, sick or whatever, you probably don't hear everything that the doctor's saying. You may not remember everything, you know, that you need to tell the doctor. So having someone around who can advocate for you is very important. So let, let's talk about the caveat, right? You know, what if, you feel that your doctor or your hospital is not listening to you. 
you know, I mean, what do you recommend? I mean, do you recommend maternal, maternal advocacy services? I mean, what do you do in that situation? Yeah, you know, that's probably something we don't do well. Like I said, there are some, sometimes you don't have an option to go. I mean, you can go for a second opinion sometimes, but it might be in the same system, right? You don't necessarily always have the choice to go to a different place. Um, there are patient advocates that the hospital should provide. So if you ask for a patient advocate, they should be able to give you that. In the maternity space, um, I think we've, we've talked a little bit about doulas. And so they have a unique role. So it's a support person. A doula is not a clinical provider. Um, they are really there to help su support a pregnant person during the pregnancy process and immediately postpartum. Um, so for some people, a doula is helpful. One of the hindrances to doulas though is because they're not a clinical provider, they're not usually paid for by insurance, right? So that's an out-of-pocket expense. So sometimes that's a limiting step for some people. Um, but, I, you know, so it's, those are probably your best options. You know, like I said, the company that I'm working with now, Kayaba Care is trying to bridge that gap and provide. So the, the person that is the, um, the crux of our model is somebody called a maternity navigator. Um, and so that's really, she's really clinically trained. So that helps um, with some of your clinical questions, but it's also an extra layer of training that she has that is gonna give you that support um, feature and that we are trying to incorporate as a, a corporate model, if you will, of empowering everybody. So we want all of our employees to be empowered so that they can go in the, com the community and empower um, the women uh, and other pregnant people that we serve. So. You know, that's, that's what we're trying to do in this, in our little um, part of the world, and hopefully we'll expand at some point, but there's not a lot of um, advocacy help, if you will, in, in that mm -hmm. department right now, unfortunately. Well, you know, thanks for sharing that, because um, when I looked at your website for, um, how to pronounce it? Um, Kayaba. Kayaba Care. I really, really, I saw, I guess the official term is, is it integrated care, right? or holistic care, it's like you guys, <laughs> you guys had doctors, nurses, um, what was it, caseworkers? It's like you had the holistic team, right? right. Tell us about that. What, what does that mean? Why would you have a holistic team? Because as we transition to the discussion, I definitely want to kind of talk about this holistic approach. You know, we've definitely talked about the medical side of it, but tell us about what you guys are doing there with Kayaba Care in the context of this holistic care and why that's important. Right, so our team, um, you kind of named all the people. So kind of thinking as from a, I don't know what word I want to use, we'll leave that out. So we talked about my maternity navigator. Um, and so that is the person who really interfaces with um, our pregnant um, population the most. So she can go out to the home, she can send you text messages, she can call you on the phone. It's really tailored to what you need, determines the, the, the way we interact with you. If um, when she comes out to the house to have a clinical visit, then she is going to link in with our nurse practitioner. So if you have any questions about your prenatal care, about any symptoms that you might be having, any concerns about mental health, any of those things, then you can discuss those in real time with the nurse practitioner. And then if we need to say you missed your diabetes screening and we need to help uh, facilitate that, we can help do that. So it's both to make sure you're 
your clinical needs are still being met, but also to see if there's anything else that um, needs to be filled in. So the maternity navigator is also going to assess what your living situation is. Do you have live uh, housing instability? Do we need to help with rehousing you? Do you have access to um, uh, insurance? Did you sign up for WIC? Are you going to have a car seat when you leave? Um, you know, what's your employment status? Do you have enough to eat? If any of those things are seem to be an issue, then she'll refer you to our social worker. Then our social worker will figure out what the resources you need and then match you to the appropriate resources. If you, if one of your needs is mental health, then we'll refer you to our licensed clinical social worker to see if you might need some therapy. If the licensed clinical therapy uh, social worker says, well, therapy is good, but she might need medication, then we have a psychiatrist on staff that we can refer you to that would help with medication management if you need it. Those are a very small group of people. Um, and then of course, there are physicians on staff like myself and um, the CEO is also an um, emergency medicine physician. So we're trying our best. And you know, like I said, this is new, it's a startup. Um, we're trying our best to figure out how to meet the needs of the whole person so that the pregnancy outcome can be the best as it can be. Awesome, well, thank you for that. And what I want to do is transition to Q&A. So thank you all for being so patient as we just talk through this topic. I've seen some questions pop into the chat. So um, Katie, uh, Tamika, do you guys mind, you know, um, helping us get some of those questions out of the chat? And if you're listening now, if you want to raise your hand and let us know you have a question, you can either type it and someone will read it for you, or you can unmute yourself and you can uh, ask your question directly. I see one in here from um, KT. How do you get checked out if you're older to see if you are healthy enough to have a baby? And then how do you get your eggs fertilized and get appointment? Is it covered? And at what age range for that? Asking heavy questions. I um, know. <laughs> <laughs> so um, taking a step back. So where should we start? If you're interested in getting pregnant, the first thing you want to do is go for your general annual exam, well woman visit, and get all of your preventative screening done. That's number one. Um, we most time we talk about advanced maternal age as being anything over 35. That doesn't mean you can't have a baby after 35, but our natural fertility as a as a whole, like all women on as, as a whole, will start to go down after 35 and our risk for congenital abnormalities, chromosomal um, uh, syndromes like Down syndrome or that type of thing starts to track up after 35. It doesn't go from zero to 60. It's a gradual trend up. Um, fertility is a gradual trend down. Once you get past 40, it's a more dramatic trend down for fertility, up for abnormalities. On, in addition to that, your risk for just um, health conditions in general goes up, right? Your, as we age, as everybody ages, our risk for high blood pressure and diabetes and that type of thing goes up. And so if you already have those issues before you're pregnant, if you get pregnant, then your risk for complications due to those particular illnesses will go up as well. So that's kind of one. If you um, are in that age range and you're looking to have uh, a baby, then you want to go and you're, there are certain hormone levels that we do check to see what your ovarian reserve is, is what we call it. Uh, and that gives us an idea of what your likelihood of, of conceiving naturally would be. 
for women who are um, kind of in that window, um, who are considering fertility options, there's a few. I mean, you can um, get your eggs frozen. Um, there are optimal ages to do that, of course, the more uh, available eggs that you have. So for those who don't know, women are, or those people with ovaries are born with all the eggs that they're ever gonna have. We don't make any more after we're born. Um, and so there's, that's why there's a finite number and that's why we can't have babies until we're 75, right? So kind of once all those eggs age out, which usually happens somewhere between our late thirties and early forties, um, that's why it's more and more difficult to have babies after that time. Um, and that's why it's also, if you're going to freeze your eggs, there's optimal times when you have more available eggs, the younger that you are. Um, so I think, I don't know if that answered the question exactly, but um, insurance does cover it in some, some states better than others. It is expensive um, to have your, and it's multi, multifactorial, right? So there's a cost for harvesting eggs and freezing eggs and then storing eggs, right? So then after you get them out, you have to put them somewhere and you have to pay for those to be stored. Um, if then you want to get them fertilized and that's a whole nother process. And then you have to unfreeze them, get them fertilized, have them implanted, yada, yada, yada. So there are definitely fees that are associated with them. Uh, with each step, some insurance covers some of the process, not all the process. So it just depends on what, what insurance you have. Thank you, thank you. And I saw um, a comment from KT. She said that answered her question, so thank you. No. What other question do we have? I know that should be. That's the there. only one I see in the chat. They're being shy. <laughs> well, let's see. Um, feel free if anyone can unmute themselves. They want to ask a question. Um, I saw a hand go up. I never figured out how that works. To me, oh, who is that? Um, no, yeah, there's a hand up there. Yashana. Yay, you said it right. <laughs> hey. Hi. Um, so I'm a doula in North Carolina. Um, and one of the biggest roadblocks that I've run into actually hasn't even been priced. I'm priced pretty low um, simply because I have a full-time job and I'm not in it for the money. Um, but it's been the lack of education as to what a doula does, why they're important, um, and things like that. What do you suggest um, as far as getting that information out and letting people know why that particular support person can be so effective in you know, the birthing arena? Yeah, I think that's also important. I think there is um, still some misconceptions to your point about what doulas are, what their purpose is. Um, some of our, you know, I talk about our maternity navigators, several of them are doula trained, which is great. Um, and so I'm definitely, I'm, I'm a fan of doulas. I think there, unfortunately, there's the fragmentation, right, in the OB community around um, kind of what everybody is supposed to do. And I think there, there is some confusion even from the, the practitioners, right, about what role doulas serve. So I think to your point, I think there needs to be education at all levels, right? So from the OB providers and the patients and the healthcare system um, about how important that support person is and not just a support. So I, you know, I said that you should bring somebody to, with you all the time. 
And that's also important. The importance of also having a doula is this is a specially trained person in the maternity process. So that person is going to be able to hear things differently um, than somebody who is not trained and advocate for you in a different way um, than somebody who's not. So your, you know, your sister will advocate for you all day, but she might, she might be wrong because <laughs> she's talking about. So doulas are going to know what they're talking about and be able to advocate for you in an appropriate way. Um, I think we just have to, you know, like I said, we're trying to incorporate doula training into, um, our, um, our program. Um, and so I think just the more that we do that, the more that it's just kind of part of the process, um, the more we can ask, like, did, you know, do you have a doula? Do you, can we help you get a doula? Um, as, as we provide prenatal care, I think it's helpful. I just think we just kind of have to keep like anything else that's, and even though doulas aren't new, but, um, anytime something is new, we just kind of have to flood people with information until, you know, the uptake takes. Well, let's, let's talk about that, Dr. Fleming, because that was actually one of the questions that, um, we skipped, and I see a question from Melissa. So uh, Melissa, we're gonna to get to you, and Tamika, if you can help me grab questions, but what do you think about this topic? Cause you know, we skipped it, but you know, now we're there. The topic of, you know, natural birth, right? Mm-hmm. Birth outside of hospitals. And I think that could involve doulas, but you kind of answered my question, so I didn't ask it. And one of the things that you mentioned is, hey, access to blood, right? Mm-hmm. And when you said access to blood, I kind of was like, hmm, I wonder what she's going to say about birth outside the hospitals. Yet, let's go ahead and have that discussion, right? <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Because I don't want to put you on the spot. You're probably going to know what I'm going to say. But yeah, so, 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 so tell me your thoughts. Let's take, so we also, so when we were prepping, we talked a little bit about definition. So this is probably a good time to talk about definition since we're talking about um, doula. So I am an OBGYN. So you're talking about words that you didn't want to say earlier. So that's an obstetrician and gynecologist. In terms of maternity, the obstetrician is the important part. So an obstetrician is a physician specifically trained to take care of women before, during, and after pregnancy. That is our role. Um, We are delivering providers, which means we can deliver you vaginally. We can do what we call operative vaginal delivery. So if you need a vacuum or forceps, if you need a cesarean section, we can do that. We do all of those things. Um, The gynecology part is basically the women's health provider. So we do things like annual exams, pap smears, normal preventative, um, other normal preventative screenings, anything that's going to follow up from an abnormal pap smear like colposcopies. We also do surgery. So we might do the surgery if you need to have your ovaries taken out or your fallopian tubes taken out. If you need a tubal ligation because you don't want to have any more babies or if you need your uterus taken out and have a hysterectomy, we do that. Both types of physicians are considered surgeons. So we both do surgeries. Um, so we are surgeons. So anyway, so that's an obstetrician. Other uh, practitioners in the healthcare space. You may get prenatal care from a family medicine um, provider. Family med- there are family medicine doctors who provide prenatal care and also do normal vaginal deliveries. Rarely they would do C-sections, but there are some very rural populations. Um, you might find a family medicine doctor who is trained to do cesarean sections. Then we have midwives. So midwives are maternity health providers. So um, they also were trained to take care of women before pregnancy, during pregnancy, do deliveries, and in the postpartum period. They generally take care of low-risk populations. So these are women who otherwise are normal, 
they're pregnant. That's it. Um, and they can do normal vaginal deliveries. They can take place inside or outside of the hospital. So we'll go back to inside, outside of the hospital in a second. Um, and then we talked about doulas. So doulas are, like I said, non-clinical. They're not going to do deliveries, but are going to support during the pregnancy process. It's very important. All of these people are very important. Um, and how, and so you can have a doula, whether you have an OB or a midwife. So that is, is not, that doesn't change anything. Generally, you will only have, if you have a midwife, you may or may not have an OB. Um, there's always an OB on backup for the midwife in case your pregnancy becomes complicated, um, you need additional care, or if you during the delivery, you need additional intervention that the midwife cannot do. So that's, that's that. So when we talk about home births versus hospital births versus birthing center births, so that's another possibility where you can deliver. I am personally not a fan of home births. Um, because I think it's, it's dangerous. Um, because when things in OB go bad, they go bad quickly. Um, so are there women who deliver at home and they are fine? Yes. Cause most deliveries are normal and fine. Well, we have a very hard time predicting when they are going to go bad and how quickly they are going to go bad. And so that's why we don't really advocate for home births. Have, I have worked with midwives who deliver at home and they, they're great and I won't take anything from them. And I, and I think they deliver great care. Um, but if as me as an individual, would I recommend having a home birth? I would not. There are midwives who, who um, operate out of a birthing center. So a birthing center is going to be more equipped, right? They're going to have basic interventions, like they can do IV, they're going to have basic medications that they can give you. Um, but you're not going to get an epidural in a birthing center. You're not going to be able to have an operative vaginal delivery in a birthing center. You're not going to get a C-section in a birthing center. Um, if you're having severe bleeding after birth and you need uh, surgical intervention, you're not going to be able to do that in a birthing center. Um, there are birthing centers that are located adjacent to hospitals so that that transport um, can be very efficient and expedient. So that's okay. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, but um, it, 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 there's still a level of risk that you take by having a birth outside of the hospital. You can have a very low intervention birth in a hospital. So there are women who, so when you talk about natural birth, that means different things to different people. Um, but strictly speaking, a natural birth generally means no intervention, right? So you might not want IV fluids. You don't want any kind of medicine to make your labor go faster. You don't want an epidural. You don't want anything for pain. All you want is support for delivery when the baby comes out and that's it. You can do that in a hospital. That is a-okay and that is fine. You need to find a provider in a hospital that fits your, what you're looking for, but you can have a very natural birth with low interventions in a hospital. But you have the added benefit of knowing if something goes bad and if it goes bad quickly, then you have everything you need. And so I'll give you an example of something that happened to me a couple, about a year and a half ago. I was working on call in the hospital. Um, and I was actually back up for a family medicine practice that um, provided OB care. And I'm in the hospital, I'm in the call room and they call me and they were like, I think you need to come to room, I don't know what room it was, seven, it's not room seven. I was literally from here to across the room from her room. So I get up, I walk to her room, it's clearly an emergency. 
the, the reason why this woman lived was that I was two steps down the hallway. The anesthesiologist was down the hallway giving somebody else a um, epidural. So came flying down the hallway. We were on that same hallway was the operating room. So in a matter of minutes, we took this woman out of that room into the operating room. What she had was a complication called a uterine rupture, which means then during the, the delivery process, her uterus opened and her baby was in her abdomen, not in her uterus anymore. She had about two liters of blood in her belly. If that had happened outside of the hospital setting, she would have died hands down. What saved her life is she was in the hospital and that we were all there and ready to go. So those are the things that scare us as OBs because we see the bad things that can happen and we want you to be safe. We want you to go home with your baby. And in order to do that, in order for us to take the best care of you, it's most likely in a hospital setting. Awesome, awesome. You covered that question very to my surprise, but consistent with what I would expect. I have some questions so we can transition. Um, Tamika, did we get any more questions in the chat? I know Melissa came in late. Did she have a question? Yeah, Melissa came in late and I'm not sure if hers was actually answered. Okay, Melissa, Melissa, Melissa. you wanna come off mute and um, speak? She says it was answered. Okay. Okay, she was answered. So, so, so I got an overall discussion question, and you know, for the people who are shy, we can talk less specific and more generic. So, my um, Sydney question, Randolph has a hand raised, also. Oh, Cindy. Hey, Sid. Sydney. Sydney. Hey, Sid. What question? Hey, you got? sorry, I had to stay muted for uh, longer than I expected because we just left football practice. But I did catch uh, the discussion. Um, and one thing I just wanted to comment on is especially dealing with, um, so I'm a parent educator for Early Head Start. And one of the things we run into is, like she said, just lack of knowledge. Um, but one thing that we try to work with our pregnant moms with, um, we try to go a little bit deeper and we try to get to those grandmothers and those great grandmothers mm -hmm. and those aunts and those uncles, um, because those are the people who give what the, give their thoughts and how they feel on pregnancies to our moms. And so it's really, really hard trying to break that barrier um, with the moms that we have. So they'll come in and they'll say, hey, Miss Sydney, I want to have a doula. Or, hey, Miss Sydney, I want to have a home birth. And then I'm like, okay, so let me know what you know about them. Well, my mom says I shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. My mom says that's dumb. Or I don't need that. I get that all the time. Like, well, my grandmother didn't do it or my grandmother did it. And so it has to be right, right? And so the whole, so hopefully I get these moms at a month, right? But realistically, a lot of times I get these moms, they're already six, seven months pregnant. Um, and so I spend the whole entire time fighting with the mom pretty much to tell her it's okay to have your own opinion, right? Yeah. And then by the time it happens, I'm like trying to scruff around and find her, find her program or find her doula. Um, so our program we actually uh, linked with, uh, we have here in Detroit, um, it's called Black Mothers Breastfeeding Association. Mm -hmm, yeah. um, it's a really, really, really cool uh, program for our moms here in the city of Detroit. And I've never seen this many boobs out in my entire life. I went to a <laughs> conference and it was like 200 moms and everybody got somebody strapped to them. So it was the most amazing yeah. experience 
Um, and so now we're just trying to invite the grandmothers and those great grandmothers and those aunts and just the older generation to some of our meetings and to some of the activities that we have, because that is where we find the problems because we have this millennial group. And one thing we were just in conference this week and we'll be in conference next week is millennials make up 85 percent of all pregnancies right now. And so we have these millennials who just want to be natural and they love the earth mm -hmm. and everything about it is amazing. But then you have grandmother in your ear or her mom saying, well, this is weird. Well, why are you setting things up like this? Or why are you changing your house to Montessori? And why are you doing all of these things? And so now it's like, not only are we fighting against the moms, but we're fighting against grandma and granddad and everybody else telling this girl, you should not do this or that's stupid or you don't want everybody to be in your business. That's what we hear all the time. Like she don't need to be in your business, Abdullah. And I explained to them what it is. Mm -hmm. Oh, she's going to be all in your business, girl. And then that immediately throws up a wall. Right. Because nobody wants anybody in their business. So now we're just trying to figure out how we can just bridge those gaps. And I don't know if you you have had this. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the issue. It's, you know, and I, another example that happens like in the clinical setting is with epidurals. Right. So you'll be in there and this woman is screaming and crying and her mother or the, uh, the support, her partner is like, you don't need an epidural. And I'm like, do you not see this woman screaming and crying? And she's asking for an epidural. Like that doesn't make her any less of a mom because she decides to get an epidural. But it's this, to your point, like there's this conflict that they don't want to disappoint their family member or go against their family member's wishes and trying to help them understand that this is your body and your choice. And you have to make the decisions best for you in the pregnancy that you're carrying. Um, and so that translates to a lot of the, the healthcare experience to your point. So I agree. I think we, we probably do need a better job of incorporating. Like I said, I think you should always bring somebody with you um, to, the, to the, your visit so that we can do some more of that like real-time peer-to-peer education to explain why these things are important. And just because, one, just because your pregnancy is a different person uh, was different and you did something you know, you didn't need any interventions or you didn't have a doula or you, you know, didn't want this and that doesn't mean that's what I need and what's best for me. And even within the same person, I also tell moms this, this pregnancy, pregnancy one is not the same as pregnancy two. You may have very different needs from pregnancy one versus pregnancy two, and you shouldn't judge yourself um, any less because your needs have changed and that's okay. Um, so I just think we just have to, you know, to your point, just keep telling them until we can and try to change, change that culture. Thanks, Sid, for that question. Dr. Fleming, I want to transition to outside the hospital. And, um, and then we're going to get to Amanda's question. It's one of the reasons why I wanted my family to be here tonight is we've definitely seen a lot of outside of the hospital um, activity. And I guess this is what we call the physical environment the socioeconomic factors. Mm -hmm. And I want to introduce this with this concept that came from this one doctor, Dr. David Olds, and he called it the magic window concept, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and as I read his concept, I see my sister. See, my sister, you know, lost her when I was 19. She was 20. She left behind a four-month-old child. She was a fighter. If I looked at her risk factors, she had housing instability. She was in a situation of domestic violence. But what happened is when her child was born, I seen a total change in her. She became like this instant peaceful person. Mm. And I was like, is this my sister? She's a fighter. I mean, 
but she had this thing where I could tell she wanted to take care of her child. Dr. David Olds gave this a name. He called it the magic window concept. I introduced this because my question for the open discussion, everybody that's here, is what can we do as family members, wives, sisters, loved ones, uncles, aunt, do to protect these young women in our lives, these first-time moms, these things that are happening for in their physical environment, their social economic factors. If you don't mind sharing with us what those things are and then helping us open the discussion on what we could do as a village to support these women when they leave the hospital. You know, if I had a good answer for that, I could uh, save the world, I think. But I think I think it's hard. Um, you know, I, so another part of that, I guess, uh, analogy is that most women, not all, no, most pregnant people, it, it's a it's a captive audience, right? Because once you're carrying another life, your priorities shift. Um, and generally speaking, most people are going to eat better. They're going to make better choices. They're going to not drink. They're going to not smoke, right? Um, they change their life goals to make sure that this person that they are creating is going to have the best uh, chances in life. And most people want their children to have a good life and a better one than, than the one that they had. That's just human nature across cultures, across generations. Like that's just what what um, was happening. And so I think because of that, this kind of plays into this little magic window because we now have a captive audience of a person who really wants to do the right things. How do we capitalize on that moment? Um, and, you know, there are things that are, you know, programs in place um, that try to help in those windows um, and all those kind of vulnerable windows, not just around pregnancy, but like around um, early childhood education and and that zero to three window after the baby's born, because the baby and mom kind of need that support right after delivery. Um, but I think as support people, um, you know, is really trying to make sure that that person can optimize every area of their life. So if it's, if it's a housing instability issue, either can you provide some place for them to stay or can you link them up with the social service um, provider that can help with, with housing placement? Um, you know, it's, it, so it, there's not, every, not each individual can take on one of those burdens and fix it, but it might be that you can at least direct that person to the service that they need or, you know, babysit for them once in a while, fix them a dinner once in a while. Sometimes it's the very little thing. Sometimes moms, especially like in that, the immediate postpartum, um, and we didn't really get into this much, but we talk about immediate postpartum. Um, there's a huge risk for postpartum depression, right? And that can be a very stressful time. Um, it can have very dire consequences for, for moms who have a really hard time. But sometimes those moms just need a break. You need to, they just need somebody to come over and sit with them. Um, take the baby for a while, cook a dinner, clean the house. Sometimes it's just the little things that'll keep somebody from teetering over the edge. Um, understanding if their environment is safe, like you talked about intimate partner violence. If you, if you see something, say something. You know, like if, if you really think somebody's in an unsafe environment, figure out a safe way to help them. Um, and you got to figure out a safe way. You can't just go yank them out of a situation that might make things worse, but try to figure out a safe way to help those people. So just 
try to think about, it's not always a big thing that helps somebody. Sometimes it's a small gesture that lets them know that they that you care and that gives them a break from whatever that immediate stressor is. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Anyone else in the audience? I see Amanda has a question. Anyone else want to weigh in on the topic? What can we do as family members to advocate for our wives, our sisters, our loved ones once they leave the hospital? <laughs> um, it's me again. <laughs> I was trying to wait. I was like, I don't want to say anything else. Um, I think it's really important for um, young moms to understand that everything is going to be okay. Uh, we get so much pressure, um, and I can speak, I say we because I, <laughs> I put a lot of pressure on myself. So I have twins, of course, they're nine now, but I probably had the craziest birthing story ever <laughs> with the twins. Um, and I think that I wasn't prepared because I didn't know that it could go as crazy as it went. So, and let me start by saying I was pregnant with Zach and Zoe, went full term with them, you know, big as a house, body was like all over the place. Um, I had to stop driving at like seven months because I was so big. Like I just wasn't mentally and emotionally prepared for what was to come. Like I found out I was pregnant with twins at like six weeks, right? So I was like, okay, I'm having twins. Let me get prepared. So I was getting prepared financially and getting their rooms and things together, but I wasn't prepared for what actually was mm -hmm. to come. Um, and when I say that, like just my body and I, of course your body changes, but with twins, it's just like a whole different ball game, right? It's just <laughs> some things happen, Indeed. moved around. And I'm nine years later, I still blame my kids for half of the things that happened, happened to me. Um, and I just wasn't, it was just a lot of pressure, right? Cause you don't want to let your children down and you don't want to let your family down. And you don't want to let yourself down because it's this weird uh, thought process of like, if I don't do this so good, I'm just a horrible mom, right? Like who can't take care of their own babies? And I had two babies crying at the same time. And there was a time I will never forget. Um, Zachary and Zoe were just crying and crying and crying. And I just took them. Luckily I moved back in with my mom I just took them upstairs and laid them on her bed and walked downstairs and like walked around the neighborhood for like two hours because I was like, I'm about to lose my mind. Mm -hmm. um, luckily I had prayer. So I, I, I knew something wasn't right. Right. So I knew that, okay, let me pray. Cause this isn't right. But the first thought that I had was like, I can't let my babies down, which still should have been the first thought. Right. The first thought should have been like, I need to get myself together for what, for my change and what I need for my health. And I was still like, I can't do this. I can't let my babies down. And so I think with our generation, and I'm sure it's every mom, right? They're like, can't disappoint your family. You can't disappoint your babies because what kind of mom loses control, right? Like we hear these stories on like postpartum depression and these moms harming these babies and doing things like that. And everybody's looking at them sideways. Like, how dare she? How could she? But you never know until you're put in that situation, you know? And it, and it came, like I said, even with my birthing story. My body went into labor on a Tuesday. They were like, no, those babies are just fine. So they sent me back home. They stopped my contractions, sent me back home, went to get a stress test on Thursday, and my water levels around my son were low. And they were like, wait a minute, you think your water broke? But come to find out, Zachary had two bags of water around him. So my body went into active labor on that Tuesday. 
like I thought, right? Because the whole pregnancy, the doctor's like, yeah, when your contractions are this many minutes apart, come on in. So I'm like, wait a minute. My contractions are this far apart, but they're telling me the babies are perfectly fine. So I had epidural uh, the night before that Thursday night. I had, had an epidural. I had my daughter at 1053 that Friday. Um, and she started packing everything up. And I was like, wait, it's two of them in here. And she's like, he's not ready yet. And I'm like, the same kid that had two bags of water around him is not ready. And she's like, nope. I didn't have Zachary until almost four o'clock that evening. So by the time I had Zachary, I felt every inch of him coming out. So I just had the craziest. And so when I tell people that story, they're like, what in the world? I'm like, yes, I like had a medicated birth and a natural birth. Um, because by the time I had them, like I said, I felt everything. And so that put me in, in a mode of like, okay, if I can do this, I can do anything. Mm -hmm. So I went home with that same mindset until I was ready to break. And I think a lot of moms, like once you have that baby, like, yes, I can do it. I'm the mom that can do it. And then the baby's crying for three days straight. And you're like, now I'm at my weakest moment. So just having the, having mom just understand like, it's okay. It will be okay. It takes time. It takes patience. And sometimes we, we don't have all the answers at all um, with or without support. Um, just having an understanding like, okay, it's okay that they're crying. Uh, the whole, I can't hold my baby because then they're going to be spoiled. Or I want to hold my baby because my baby is crying. It's just, it's so many different takeaways from that. And I find, like I said, with myself, yes, I had prayer and I had the mindset to say, okay, let me figure this out. Like, let me take these babies upstairs really quick because something in this situation is going to end badly. Um, but a lot of our moms don't because we put so much pressure on ourselves just to be this amazing mom, just right off that. Right. And I think, like I said before, I think it comes from like our, we see our moms and our grandmothers and our aunts and they're like these amazing women and they don't show us the weakness within them. And so we feel as if we can't show the weakness within ourselves. Wow. Sid, thanks for sharing that story. And I know your story just blessed me in a whole different way. And I don't even know why. So thank you for sharing. I see Arva has her hand up. Arva, um, talk to us. Well, I want to say, uh, Sydney, I have in common with you that I have twins as well. Mine are 15 now, and I had a very interesting pregnancy starting at, well, really at conception. The person who asked the question about how to go about finding out if you are healthy enough to have uh, children, like where you should start and everything. I went through that whole process and went through an infertility um, process as well. So uh, it was a lot going through uh, infertility treatments, the hormones, the ups, the downs, the, you know, why can't I do this like everybody else does it um, factor to it as well. And then when I did get pregnant, very happy. Um, my husband and I were very happy. And then I started having problems like two weeks after I was pregnant. <laughs> so I spent 10 days in the hospital early on in the pregnancy, not, not even six weeks pregnant. And then at 20 weeks, I went in for an ultrasound and they discovered that I had an incompetent cervix. So 
uh, I left the the place where I was having the ultrasound, went down the street to the hospital and met immediately with a perinatologist who told me point blank, uh, you will have surgery tomorrow morning and it's very likely that you will lose this pregnancy. And I'm going to give you one minute to be upset about it. And then you have to get it together because if you don't, you being upset is going to make things worse for your babies. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, I had the surgery the next morning. I was in the hospital for four and a half months. Praise the Lord that I had my, uh, my sons at 37 and a half weeks, which is full term considered full term. They didn't have to go to the NICU or anything. It was great, but I spent four and a half months in the hospital. So you know, knowing the people on that wing of the hospital and then moving to labor and delivery to deliver the children, that's a whole nother set of nurses. And well, it was still my same doctor, but, you know, and, and it's like you were saying, uh, Dr. Fleming is like, well, okay. And I had a C-section because I was not, I wasn't strong enough to do uh, regular birth, mm-hmm. you know, laying around for four and a half months, but anywho, they were very interested in, okay, get up so you can go to the bathroom and, oh, do this and do that. And, you know, my husband had to tell them, look, you know, we have been on the other side of the hospital for four and a half months. So back up, <laughs> please. Um, so, you know, all of that went well. And, and, and to answer your question, um, about the question that you posed, um, Calvin, about what we can do to support new mothers when they get home is to tell them upfront, it is okay to ask for help. There is no shame in asking for help. There is no reason that you should feel like I can do this on my own. I can, you know, oh, my mom did it. My grandmother did it. You know, well, you know what? Your mom probably didn't have twins. Your grandma probably didn't have twins. Um, you know, speaking from my, my own experience and, and, you know, having a community around you or having, being the community around a new mother to say, hey, if you need meals cooked, I can stop by and, you know, put some stuff in the fridge for you. Do you need groceries? I can go and pick that up for you. Um, Do you need two hours to sleep? I can watch the kids for you while you take a nap. Um, Letting them know that it's okay to ask for help. And like you said, Dr. Fleming, it's the small things because, you know, you can't even shower (laughs) as, as as a new mother you know, um, just even, even the basics. So that would be what I would say. Awesome. Thank you, Arva. Thank you for sharing your testimony, your story. Uh, and I know it's definitely, um, less many people. Um, Amanda, you still there? I saw you had a question about, uh, water birth. Now, um, Dr. Fleming, um, Water births, um, do that fit into the natural birth? Tell us about that. Because Amanda may have missed your answer on that one. Oh, yeah. Generally speaking, um, so water births are just what they sound like, that you deliver in a tub of water. 
Um, Waterbirds in and of themselves are fine. Um, if you have a provider who's willing to do a water birth with you, if you're going to do a water birth, I still recommend doing that in the hospital. And there are hospitals that have tubs um, that uh, will accommodate water births. Generally speaking, most uh, providers who are going to do a water birth, it's going to be a midwife more likely than an obstetrician. I'm sure there are some of us who will do them. Um, I, as individual, am not doing water births because I am not getting in that tub of water with you. <laughs> because for those of you who have been in delivery, lots of things happen in the process and the time of delivery. And I'm not going to be in the water with those things when those things happen. So, um, but in and of themselves, I, they're fine. I would recommend doing them in the hospital setting if you have a provider who's willing to uh, do a water birth with you. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for a discussion with the audience.